Hello, everyone, and welcome to Energy Security Cubed, one of the world's foremost energy security podcasts presented by the CGAI, or Canadian Global Affairs Institute. I'm Kelly Ogle, Managing Director here at CGAI. And I'm Joe Kalnan, Fellow and Energy Security Forum Manager at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. For today's podcast, we're featuring an interview with Rob Seelock, expert in the cybersecurity of critical energy infrastructure to discuss the threats we're facing on the cyber front. But before we go into that, let's quickly have a discussion with Joe Kalman about the news stories affecting global energy security this week. How are things with you, Joe? Well, things are fine, Kelly. You know, always busy. Lots of uh, interesting stories this week. And uh, of course, we'll be providing some updates on that later. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm interested. I've had a review here of the work you've done for today, and I, these are interesting stories that not everyone's going to see unless they get your newsletter, which we would really highly ask people to subscribe, um, www.cgaai.ca, and find Joel's newsletter and subscribe because he digs up these interesting stories like the one we're going to start with, right? Yeah, um, this is a story that uh, triggered the flags in my brain. It, it's not it's not something that's going to be the front page of every newspaper, but I think it's something that we really need to pay attention to because it shows some of the trade-offs really involved in integrating national security into economic decision-making. So first up, let's discuss this piece of news I'm talking about, which is uh, the difficulty in crafting critical mineral regulations here in Canada under question here. Uh, so on Monday, SRG Mining, uh, this is a Canadian mining company, announced that it would re-domicile from its current headquarters in Montreal to the United Arab Emirates. So this follows the announcement from last July that Chinese battery anode material manufacturer Carbon One New Energy Group was looking to buy a 19.4% stake in SRG. And this would provide much of the capital required for SRG's planned graphite mining and processing facilities in Africa. Specifically, SRG plans to build a large graphite mine in the Republic of Guinea, as well as an anode material plant in Morocco. Both of these would be in partnership, of course, with Carbon One. Graphite is emerging as one of the foremost minerals for battery manufacturing giving us role in the anode of lithium-ion batteries. So for this reason, graphite is currently included in Canada's list of critical minerals. Further, recent changes to the Investment Canada Act have broadened the powers of the federal government to block investments into Canadian critical minerals by foreign countries. In 2022, Canadian Federal Industry Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne use these powers to order three Chinese companies to divest from Canadian mining companies with lithium assets uh, outside of Canada. In a November press release, as a press release, SRG Mining announced its intention to relocate its headquarters, saying that doing so will mean that, quote, the proposed transaction will therefore not require clearance from the Canadian government under the Investment Canada Act, unquote. In response to the most recent developments, a spokesman for the for Champagne said that uh, government will, quote, make its own determinations on the applicability of the Investment Canada Act. You know, this isn't going to happen overnight, but because there's several things that have to happen before SRG can leave the country, in particular, 
approval from the Toronto Stock Exchange to retain its listing, um, which they would want to do. And this development illustrates some of the issues surrounding the application of national security rules to the mobility of capital. Um, as always, China remains the central hub for expertise and capital in the battery supply chain. Cutting small Canadian mining companies off from China gives these companies a powerful incentive to stop being Canadian. This is especially true when their operations are located in other continents. When they're, this is especially true when their operations are, are located on other continents. Mining companies with operations in Canada need to play nice with Canadian regulators. When operations are in Africa, however, other considerations come to the fore. And, more, and very importantly, a Canadian domiciled con, con, uh, company that operates in foreign jurisdictions, if it's a Canadian company and it happens to get involved with graft or malfeasance, uh, Canadian uh, officers can be charged. It's very tricky. It's crucial that we find a happy balance between man maintaining the security of the supply chain while still avoiding the risks of companies fleeing to other jurisdictions, such as the UAE, which can provide them with greater, if more cynical, regulatory certainty. I, there's a lot of this going to happen, Joel. And, and I, you know, I'm not, you know how I am about the government, but I'm not, I, I'm kind of, uh, I'm indifferent to these things because, oh, I guess it's going to force Canadian, uh, just got off the phone talking to a guy about a, a fairly large company that's going to get bought out because it's just not able to grow. It's in Canada and uh, uh, lack of capital, uncertainty um, around regulate, regulation. And, and it's not a miner or an oil and gas company. It's a service company. Um, tricky, Joe. Let's face it. What else you got, Joe? Uh, next up, let's quickly talk about a government body, which might be the most powerful economic agency in the world, and uh, its plans for electricity for the world's largest energy consumer and what that could mean for uh, this country. I'm talking about China's National Development and Reform Commission, or NDRC. This is, this is the primary body used by the government of China to exert macroeconomic control over the country and the producer of China's much-touted five-year plans. On Tuesday, the NDRC released a notice setting targets for electricity capacity in 2027, setting out plans that have 80 gigawatts of hydro energy storage, as well as a fully upgraded coal fleet both of which will allow the incumbent power system to more easily deal with energy production variation from renewables. This is in line with the uh, NDRC's 14th five-year plan, which was released in 2022, and said, quote, we will enhance our capacity for clean energy absorption and storage, improve our ability to transmit electricity to remote areas, increase the flexibility for coal-fired power generation, and speed up the development of pump storage hydroelectric plants and the scaling up of new energy storage technologies, unquote. This is interesting. Um, however, Reuters uh, reported that the notice from the NDRC also included mention of new gas-fired power plant to be built in areas with a stable supply of affordable natural gas. While this improves the security of supply for natural gas, while improving the security of supply for natural gas was mentioned in the five-year plan, building new gas-fired power plants wasn't. Questions remain about what constitutes an, I quote, area with a stable supply of affordable natural gas, unquote. The Chinese government has substantial control over this. Russia is currently desperate 
to find an alternative customer for its immense natural gas reserves as it's lost its longstanding relationships with Europe. However, so far the Chinese government has held off from a final agreement on the power of Siberia 2 gas pipeline, which was meant to supply China with Russian gas. China could be playing the long game here, waiting for Russia to drop prices further as the lack of customers continues to grow, but there's good reason for why China may not want a pipeline. We have to remember that China-Russia relations have historically been less warm than they are today. Some of our listeners may recall the Sino-Soviet split, which saw a small-scale war in Manchuria in 1969. That's really dating guys like me, Joe, you know. There's not, I wonder how many listeners are, <laughs> remember that. I was 12 years old, Joe. Some of our listeners will. <laughs> but I'd rather most of our listeners had to look it up because they'd be younger <laughs> than the change okay. makers like you. While the Chinese government may be able to get major price concessions from Russian natural gas supply, the overall thrust of China's strategy nevertheless affirms that coal and hydropower will be the primary sources of electrical energy alongside renewables for many decades to come. Great, Joe. A couple of interesting stories that, that, that won't meet the 30-second uh, uh, current affairs soundbite today, and that's I'm, I thank you for bringing them up. Yeah, of course. You know, very different uh, stories and both involving China, but in different ways. And I think people need to pay a bit more attention to things like the uh, National Development and Reform Commission, which is quite honestly one of the most important organizations in the world today and doesn't get talked about. Great, Joey. For sure, Kelly. And uh, like you said, I uh, strongly recommend for all of our listeners to go on to CGI's website and subscribe to our uh, Energy Security Forum newsletter, where you get these stories, but also a variety of updates on our energy security work. And generally, it's a good way to stay in touch with uh, what the Energy Security Forum is doing. Thanks, Joe. Let's talk to, to Rob Seelock. For today's interview, recorded February 28, 2024, we discuss cyber risks and vulnerabilities for critical energy infrastructure and the capabilities of our adversaries. With us to discuss this is Rob Seelock. Rob is a member of the cyber team at Enbridge, as well as a signals officer in the Canadian Armed Forces Reserves. Rob, it's really cool, and we're really delighted to have you on the podcast. This is uh, an area of, uh, of information that we've never explored, so we're sure looking forward to talking to you. Well, thank you very much. I do appreciate you guys uh, allowing me on your podcast, as I mentioned before. Big fan. Uh, just wanted to highlight, though, anything I express on this will be my views, not of the CAF or any of my current employees, and also in regards to any information discussed, it will be of the open source intelligence nature. So I think we should be good to go for any of your questions. Great. And just for the pe for people's information, the CAF means the Canadian Armed Forces, as Rob is an officer in the reserve. Let's start off with try to understand the, the uh, quote, attackers who are often responsible for cybercrime. In previous conversations with us, you said that there are six types and three general levels of external threat actors. Can you quickly describe, well, can you describe these six types of threat actors and their differing motives from what you sure. know, Rob? Yeah, uh, and, and there's minimal six. Everyone that you discuss within the cyber frameworks will outline slightly different ones, but uh, starting from the internal, we have internal 
uh, risk. Moving to the external side, we have the easy ones, usually within the framework that we're discussing of large business, the hacktivists, the terrorists, the opportunistic script kitties. Those are the lower level folks. And then we have the two key external players that we're wanting to discuss today, which is nation state leading to what is now considered arm length um, criminal organizations. Uh, I'll highlight a different podcast, sorry about that, is the CA podcast did a wonderful discussion of the CPP as well, and their criminal organization connections within the uh, West Coast. If you haven't listened, if your members haven't listened to it, go listen to it. Understand that that is a, a discussion about how and why they have those interactions. Okay, yeah, we we always like to uh, flag other podcasts. So, what what uh, what podcast specifically was that? What what channel? Uh, Civil Affairs. Uh, like this is this is the problem of me only knowing acronyms at this point in my life. I have no <laughs> idea what I'm talking about. Keeping with kind of this this area of uh, you know nation state actors and you know these arms length uh, criminal groups as well that often are like you said arms length, but also interrelated with these nation states something that's been on our radar for some time is the concept of uh, gray zone conflict and the related concept of hybrid warfare where state adversaries probe the boundaries between peace and war often with this done through proxies to create a layer of plausible deniability so uh, is this you know the uh, gray zone conflict and hybrid warfare uh in this kind of uh, area is this something you've observed in the world of cybersecurity over the past few years and as with any answer this is going to be in general terms but uh, i think we can all agree we live in dangerous times interesting times at the minimal uh, we know what's going on in regards to uh, europe as well as pacific rim there are consequences to all actions from the snowden reservations uh, we know that from a nation state perspective and i'll use the west of what he discussed there is a series of abilities, sources, and means uh, that nation states have. Those are tightly guarded, controlled, until they start drifting, as with any technology, into more widespread known. So what you usually have is a set of capabilities by any nation state that they're going to tightly control. As those become perhaps more public or more edged in the find, they will hand those off to an arm like criminal organization who will benefit by the ability of using a zero day exploit, as well as possibly relaying the information or doing another, achieving other means of that nation state. Um, without going into details of who those nation states are, I think we can guess why they're doing this. I'll also outline that this is also part of their doctrine. If you're, un, uh, if you're not aware, CPP has a doctrine of um, unrestricted warfare. If you haven't read that, take a look at the Wikipedia. It is actually a small little book. Read the book and understand how they will view the next contact, uh, uh, the, the possibility of the next conflict and how they view cyber and all the things that we use every day as part of that. So you've, you've got, you've seen this like that. And that's again, like um what other who who else would there, would be in the same would would have the same i don't know i'd like to use the term ideology but longer term strategy rob um based on the revelations of snowden again let's understand the effects of why these are so critical to both us as well as our possible peers 
Um, when Snowden made the revelations of what capabilities the United States um, intelligence agencies had, over a course of three days, Russians went quiet. It was startling to everyone, as I have heard it from the intelligence agencies, their ability to neutralize those communication means and move to alternate. Um, so that loss of SIGINT, that loss of intelligence was critical uh, in regards to our ability to conduct our own actions. I'm going to assume our peers are going to be doing the same thing and wanting those same capabilities. If we have a capability, they will want that capability. Again, um, we live in a highly digitized society. Think of the damage that could be caused. If only thing I went after was all of the IoT devices, your toothbrush, your, your light, your Christmas tree lights, all of those other things that all that I wanted to do with them is make them blast packets onto the internet. Think of the consequences everywhere from retail all the way to critical services. There are things we're gonna be able to protect, things that we will not be able to protect. There is a whole bunch of things in that not able to protect area until we had the time and energy to go back and take care of those problems. You know, I, I think that, you know, it's, it's very troubling, um, but I, I guess it sounds to me like uh, a lot of Western democracies and, and you know, in their, in their intelligence, in their signals, intelligence and signet are be, are forced to be reactive as opposed to getting out ahead of the, the of these issues. Is that, and does that track uh, trail all the way down yeah. to citizens or like, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit confused here. It all depends. So it, it, it is confusing because it all depends on where you sit from a Canadian perspective. We view cyber warfare as warfare the same as shooting a gun. So we'll take the opinion of offensive versus defensive. Other partners of ours will have a less defined strategy and some partners have a zero defined strategy, which simply means they have a much more, they have a greater freedom of movement to wish what they want to accomplish than what we do. Um, again, this is one of those things where I am very surprised these are not always in the newspaper compared to what is in the newspaper because of the capabilities that exist and the results of what will happen if those capabilities happened. Again, from a nation state perspective, just to take this down from a, a critical red to a simmering, this is a nation state movement into effectively war. So if these things happen, we will also be dodging hypersonic missiles and a whole bunch of other things going on at that time. So again, that simmering action isn't at that level. The simmering action is happening at the arm length criminal perspective. Um, that is the danger zone to most of the individuals within corporations of size to become a target for monetary exploitation primarily, as well as the ability to uh, gain or disrupt key services within, within our societies. So um, you mentioned something, which I think is very important for people to understand and a very technical term, I think, but a very technical term that has a lot of implications for uh, the cybersecurity of various, uh, like, you know, major critical en energy infrastructure, but also, you know, the systems of all sorts of companies that are 
kind of crucial for security, even even though they're uh, they're not uh, not military or not non governmental. First of all, let's get into a concept that uh, our audiences might not be familiar with. What exactly is a zero day exploit? Of course, uh, apologies. Sometimes technical terms. Uh, zero day just simply means it is an exploit unknown to the vendor. If the vendor knew it, they would create a patch to close that vulnerability. And if it's unknown to the vendor, it's probably unknown in regards to the consumers of it. Uh, the you, you have um, standard vulnerabilities that are just unfortunate coding incidents. And then you have a very deep vulnerability, something like the solar winds, where an external party embedded their malware directly within a product. We consumed it as a supply chain. And thus, um, you had a single point of entry to a multiplicity of different government and non-government agencies. So could you go through that? a little like could that that real world example rob could you break it apart a little bit sure uh in regards to solar winds and that uh I, i'm going to point everyone to the wealth of information of how supply chain exploits can take effect um, that's a slightly different situation than most people most people are sitting within a corporation that has an it infrastructure corresponding to a cyber infrastructure i will tell you right now that you have at least one vulnerability stuck within any system you look at, and that quite simply is the humans as part of it. So if I was a bad guy wanting to look at your organization, I could start at the physical aspect, the human aspect, drop off USB sticks. Uh, I can tailgate someone in, getting physical access. I can call the help desk pretending to be with someone. All those social engineering and physical aspects can kick in. Uh, the good news is, uh, if the bad guys are not physically near you, that starts limiting some of the abilities for them. However, uh, the good news is, from their perspective, the dark web and cryptocurrencies allow them to pay $50 to someone to come and pull the fire alarm, as an example, as a start of their attack vector, kicking everyone out of the building. So after I move past the physical into social engineering, we move into the technical exploits. Those could be aspects of zero day. So looking for vulnerabilities within your public facing websites, within your connectivities back for VPN services, all those other wonderful things. And then finally, I have those supply chain exploits, which again, I'm going to list on the top tier. If you have it, there's nothing you're going to do about it because you won't know about it with everyone else in the situation. Mm -hmm. So these are the kind of unknown unknowns that can really get you in a very tough situation. But turning to the ways that companies can deal with these attacks and exploits, the ways that companies can respond, uh, in layman's terms, could you give us an idea about the main tools that companies can use to mitigate the damage of a cyber attack? Okay. Um, I'm gonna, I'll keep this simple again. I'm going to assume that all the listeners right now are within an organization that have invested in their IT and cyber framework. There is no end of cyber tools, services to consume. Uh, please go contact your vendors. I'm sure they're already at your door telling you about all the great services. Those are going to do the meat and potato. Those are services you can buy to check how your patch level is, how your coding is. How um, could they be now... Um, a white hat hacker come in and expose things to you. The place that I want most of the organizations 
uh, to focus on and where I'm focusing most of my attention is on the inside of the world. What are your actual IT operational um, processes? You have a strong cyber team. You have a strong operational team. Cool. Are they actually talking? Do they do, do, they do tabletop exercises only? Uh, which means the, the, you know, the coach comes in and draws X and O's on the board. And like, if you, this happens, you're going to go here. Excellent. Everyone puts a thumbs up. They walk out of the room and totally don't talk to each other or ever, you know, even go for coffees. You take that and you move it into practice plays where now you're actually going into a lab environment. You're playing games, dungeon and dragons saying, roll the dice. Did you actually win or lose on that action? You said before the bad guy did it. Oh, you lost. Now what? I took that tool away. Now what? So really a heavy focus on the inside skill sets and ability for those teams to come together if there is an event is critical. Your vendors are there to help. Your vendors are there to supply tools. People are going to run those tools and those people are already inside your environment. They probably already know things that they're not telling you. They're probably already going down paths that you just need to expose and let them and let them help fix it. So, you know, without talking about Enbridge, like I, like, you know, this is going on every minute of every day and uh, something as simple as the pulling the fire alarm to empty the building. Like, you know, that's a, uh, <laughs> you know, think about that. Right. You, you just nailed it. Kelly is, is uh, you started with that simple physical denial of service. Anybody could pull a fire alarm. Um, in two lines of code, well, a few more than that, any user in the environment could lock out your entire environment. Now, you can recover from those things. The fire department comes in, checks out the building, everyone comes back. Uh, your, your, your infrastructure team takes a look at what, the, uh, what that internal person did, corrects it. But, you know, th this is just what we live in. Think of, think of those impacts and think of compounding those every day. Um, you're going to have to change things. This is the complexity that we live in, where really simple things can cascade forward into becoming problems. And we haven't even got to the sophistication level of people using exploits that have not been seen in the wild, in the world, anyplace else. So let me let me just hearken back to <laughs> everybody listening to this podcast knows how old I am, but I can remember <laughs> back in the... Uh, probably late 70s early 80s or you could speak to the the uh, leak in michigan you know specifically to the company you work for when it was called interprovincial pipeline and the the control of the, all the valving and and controls are were handled in the in the operations room in edmonton like it you know all the all the way through saskatchewan down into mich into uh, manitoba and into wisconsin like you know within seconds or minutes, they should be able to tell what's going on. So it seems to me that the type of work that's, that you're talking about, and we're talking about a domain out there, right? The cyber domain, it's another domain, same as geography, right. should be managed from somewhere off site. You don't have to disclose, you know, it just sounds to me like this is something that, that 24 hours a day on a rotating basis, same as an air traffic controller, we're, taught, we're, we're managing these things for big corporations that are transacting millions of dollars a minute. And, and they are. Uh, so yeah. uh, with, without getting into huge details, you're going to have something called a SOC, uh, Cyber Operations Center. They're looking at all the tools the same way that um, your operators would be over a pipeline. You're going to have perhaps um, 
uh, uh, infrastructure, NOC, a network operational center, watching networks now. So all these things are, are happening in a variety of different ways. So there's no real changes from when we talk industrial controls to IT controls with the big exception that uh, any industrial control always has a physical aspect. And when things go really bad, they go, cool. We're going to fall back on people going out with wrenches, radios and or phones. And 24 seven, they'll stand by the valve and they'll turn it as needed based on what the control room is seeing. Uh, IT operations tends not to be to that level because we don't spend the money there. We don't necessarily see it's going to happen to us. We think we can call a fire department and they'll come save us. Uh, my question to anyone who wants to go down that path is who's your fire department and will they actually come save you? Well, I'm just thinking that, Rob. Let me interject for a minute. Like yep. my farm in Saskatchewan, I'm not going to say where it is. People probably, some people know where it is, but within 10 miles of it is a pump station, yep. giant pump station. You know, the 36 inch and the 42 inch come out of the ground into the pig trap. I'm speaking specifically about your company. There's a one, there's a one engine fire truck 40 miles away. <laughs> and they're, then they're volunteers. Like, so, you know, th th this is, this makes me really nervous. Like I, and I, and I'm, I guess that's the point of the discussion. Like I, I think that we're kind of whistling past the graveyard as a, as a, as a yeah. well, nation yeah. here. I, but, well, but, but again, that, that little example that you use, I grew up in uh, rural, rural Alberta, same situation, 40 miles away from the nearest uh, volunteer, which, which I was with my family, that uh, pump station, that Trump coming off of 36, they're going to have um, pressure valves on either side and they're going to close that breakdown, right? You, you will get a loss. You'll have a loss of some capacity, obviously of shipping, but we have safety aspects in regards to the physical. And then a whole bunch of people are going to flood that zone and take care of the problem. Um, the point I think we're tro both trying to make is we look at that we look at even how we do our food safety. We look at all the things that we put value to and say, we really want to make sure these things are going to work in a, in a time of, uh, in a troubling time, either natural disaster or non-natural disaster man-made. I'm always surprised by how easy we relax around technology and go, don't worry, all this will work itself out. Um, my teams will do this or someone will come to help us. Uh, it's, uh, if you have a major cyber event, I will tell everyone, be very conscious of the fact of, if you do not have those internal skill sets within your company, if you do not have the head count into your company, you are not going to be in a position to save yourself readily. And you're now counting and hoping, hope is not a strategy on others to be able to come in and fill those voids. Uh, all that takes time. Some businesses, airlines, for example, just don't have that capability and time as part of their business to be able to absorb that. And mm. that's what I come back to is, have you really looked at this from that perspective of small to large to now holistic, massive, what happens? Yeah. And I'd like to turn to, you know, the ways in which we can start making these sort of like metaphorical fire departments that can, uh, 
you know, yeah. maybe even like internal within companies, but maybe also trying to look at ways we can do that uh, externally in case of some sort of massive cyber attacks that would be very difficult. So uh, I, I suppose some of the most important work may not be in preventing these sort of attacks because in, in many ways, what you're saying is that they're, uh, they're inevitable. How successful they are is under question, yeah. but you know, there's uh, there's obviously some very advanced capabilities among our adversaries, both, you know, nation state and criminal. Uh, so these attacks are certain to happen uh, on, you know, our, energy infrastructure on our uh, telecommunications infrastructure and all sorts of things that can really disrupt our ability to respond to uh, aggression in other ways. So uh, some of the most important work might be in managing an effective recovery after an attack uh, to prevent, you know, the persistent damage to this energy production and infrastructure. So without getting too technical, how are companies adapting to the higher probability of a major cyber attack? Well, I mean, it's the double-edged sword. Uh, as more of these events happen within the industry, the industry takes notice uh, and the industry will respond. Unfortunately, it sometimes takes the event to happen before the industry takes notice. And I think that's where we, we are right now. Um, every time an industry picket, um, entertainment, uh, hotel, oil and gas, et cetera, has these events, there is what I'll call the standard executive response. They'll walk into the room and say, I don't want to be like those guys. What happened? Now fix what happened there and make sure that we're not on the newspaper tomorrow with that same event. Um, the point I have with all that is, and this is where probably members of the audience in that executive branch won't like me. I'm going to tell you that your tools if they fail, will fail. Part of those tools is the ability to have less operational members, have a higher percentage of uh, capacity in your operational groups. If these things all start failing, you're going to rely on people. This is why it's sometimes unpopular. You will still have vendors. You may not be able to get access to those vendors. They may not be able to assist you in the time taken. The tools may be taken away, but your people, if skilled and if ready available to you, will come in and they will do their jobs. So uh, in our continual layoff situations, in our continual cost cutting methodologies, remember the fire department is probably your own people putting those volunteer hats on and coming in to do their job um, for days, hours, um, many, many hours. And if you look at your team right now, if you can't stack it into a 724 day without realizing you have to have this person work 38 days straight without sleep, you've probably crafted the team wrong for what you right. may need in those situations. So I'll yeah. challenge all, uh, I'll challenge my peers as well as the executives supporting them to sit down and have those hard discussions, which is, are we capable of doing business continuity, business uh, a disaster recovery in these situations. What do we expect and what will be there? And, and just, again, sit down and try these simple exercises. If it starts looking like it's not going to work, I'm going to suggest it probably won't work. So I, I get just before we end, I, I'm thinking of a metaphorical and analogous. I'm thinking of a, of a prison, starting with the person who's incarcerated in their cell, 
into the common area, then into administration, then the gate and the big fence. Like, is that a, is that a fair way to look at a particular issue, Rob? Like I, you know, like I, I, you need several steps to, you know, to, yeah. to, 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 to break well, down the risk of, of, uh, of that guy getting out of jail. Yeah. And I, I'll put it a different way. If it was easy, we would do it. Right. Um, and, and, you know, that's it. That's the answer to the vast majority of uh, question and answers in life is if it was easy, we would do it. Um, when things become complicated, now you're looking at the standard 80-20 answer to everything. And the answer to that is we focus on the 80 and take the victory where we all know that the 20, where 80% of the work actually sits, is probably where we need to dig in as well to keep moving that bar. But it will never get to 100. We're simply just, right. we are making ourselves, and I'll take your prison analogy. It's a good analogy. I'm going to do all these things not to ever prevent a prisoner from escaping. I can't ever say that will happen. But if I, cre if I create a system where I have ways to slow them down, ways to trip them up, ways that they have to possibly set off other alarms before they just walk out that big gate, it gives me more and more opportunity to try to stop them in their, in their tracks. And the vast majority of threat modeling and then the counter to that, putting in mitigations, really sit in that area where you're making it costly, both in, in, in investment of time and effort from the bad guys to give you that ability to try to stop them in their tracks. No perfection. You're just trying not to be the easiest target and have them move on to someone else. Not a nice thing to say, but remember, not being a victim starts with not looking like a victim. Yeah, Rob, just turning to kind of the uh, the policy side, if you don't mind here as well. So um, they, I, I'm sure that you know companies, most of this work will be have to have to be done internally within companies and devoted, like you said, devoting enough resources to their uh, cybersecurity teams, ensuring that they have enough spare capacity to deal with these sorts of crises when they come up. But, uh, and uh, I think that there's, there's a big um, issue here as well, where it comes to the, how much Canada's and generally global critical infrastructure is, you know, these sort of private companies that do have these cost pressures on them, but getting to the policy side though, and because so much of the interests of keeping this critical infrastructure secure from cyber attacks uh, relates to the public good, uh, are there steps that governments can take as well to assist in quick recoveries from a major cyber attack? Um, so um, we live in a country that actively tries to kill us half, half of the year. Uh, if I walk outside right now, I will freeze to death within X number of minutes. We have the highest... Uh, investment of infrastructure per capita of any country in the world. That's because we have a very large land mass and a very small population. I think the reason we are successful in Canada is called energy. So again, I'm going to speak, you're asking me to speak in regards to the government. I'm going to pause and say, I'm probably not an expert in regards to policy, but I'm okay in figuring out what's important to me and my family and energy is what keeps them alive. Gas, electric, uh, you, you go through it. We have no, we're not quite yet into the next level of, 
our society where magic happens and all this is is green and mystical. So my question again, I guess, will be to everyone else is, is our federal and provincial governments doing what is needed if this is the criticality of the situation? And I understand that they don't want to compete against the private industry. And we don't obviously want to be looking like that we're subsidizing oil, gas, large corporations. However, there's a lot of things could happen. And I think they're moving towards it in between those goalposts. Um, My concern, and I'll put my military hat on just for a second. You do not go to war with the military you have today. You go to war with the military you built over a decade. Mm-hmm. Are we building the capabilities today that we will need, or are we a decade behind and the world will shift too fast for us to build and catch up? I'm not sure. I hope we obviously have time, but I'm very nervous of this time and place in history where we're sitting. I'll just close my thoughts of everybody on this podcast will know where I sit on this being a uh, historically a realist. And I'm listening to to other pods and uh, commentary by some of our senior officers retired in the in the mainstream media the last couple of days about how unprepared we are, how our, bad our kid is. And I know we've we've moved a little bit away here, but you know we got to put a plug in for getting back on the on our on footing. You know the, the noise about NATO, the noise about NORAD, and and uh, the the bemoaning of our situation globally. Um, I'll just leave it at that, Joe, or I'll, you, you know how I get carried away with these, with these uh, discussions, but um, you know, we've got to, we got to up our game here. And this just gives me more, gives more credence to uh, collaboration between industry, government and the military. Like the, 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 there's just so many things we need to do here. It's, it's, well, you certainly scared me away today, Rob. That's wonderful. <laughs> Excellent. That's that's. Uh, I don't know if that was the goal. No, I, uh... I'm sure it is. So the, the, this podcast is about security and economic security, food security. I'm thinking, just as an aside, you know, I'm thinking about all those uh, where my farm is and how the the all the every tractor in the world today that's seeding a field or combining or cutting hay is working off a, a satellite. And, and and if if somebody screws that up in, in the middle of April or late April when they're sowing wheat and canola in Saskatchewan, everybody shut down. Like yep. the, the, these are real real world issues. I, I I'm uh, from a, across the spectrum of our society. I'll just leave it at that, Joe. Wind it up. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, thank you so much, Rob. This has been this has been really informative, and I think our listeners will learn a ton about how this all works and what what sort of actions need to be taken right now uh, to uh, try to firm up the uh, cybersecurity. Uh, but uh, one last question for you: that uh, on a little bit of a lighter note, what are you reading these days outside of you know just the uh, heavy technical tomes and things like that? Yeah, when you when you asked me that, I realized my entire reading list right now is uh, technical. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna hold up a book. It's a uh, Sandworm. It is still on topic, but it's uh, a reasonably light read. This is um, discussing in part Stuxnet, so it's still within the frame that we were talking about, but it's much more on the overarching structure. To that, uh, it is uh, Sandworm by Andy Greenberg. And just because I can't let anybody go without explaining some technical, uh, another really good book, which may interest some people, is The Supply Chain 
software transparency side that we discussed a little bit. Uh, Tony Turner is one of the authors. Mm. Much more technical, but it will definitely help those in manager roles or in roles where they're trying to identify risk. Lastly, I'll make a plug because this is one of the, it is one of my oldest books that I have in my um, oil and gas library. Is uh, Eric Knapp did the Industrial Network Security. It's for industrial controls. It was considered a Bible on V1. He's coming out with V3. Mm -hmm. It is, again, tactical, but a read that will put you in a mind space of how industrial control fits into this larger discussion that we just had. Um, so highly recommend any one of those three books if people are looking for at least this realm of discussion. Outstanding. Rob, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. This has been fascinating, and uh, we look forward to doing it again. Hey, thanks, guys. I really appreciate this. Thank you. I, I got my fanboy wish to talk with you guys. It was awesome. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Energy Security Cubed on the Canadian Global Affairs Podcast Network. You can find the CGAI Network on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. If you like the show, give it a rating. You can also find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. If you like this episode and want to help us keep creating content, you can support us by donating at cgai.ca slash support. Energy Security Cubed is brought to you by our team at CGAI. Thanks go out to our producer, Joe Kalman, and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Kelly Ogle. Thanks for joining us on Energy Security Cubed.